If you look at the other fathers of the church in the first, let's say, six Christian centuries, you will find that all of them uh, interacted with Greek philosophy, and almost all of them fell into some mistakes. Uh, they were swimming uh, in a lake that was full of debris. Uh, and some of it was good and some of it was bad. Uh, and they picked up some of the good parts, but they picked up some of the bad parts too. Augustine is the most orthodox and the most Christian of the church fathers because he didn't pick up the heresies. He didn't pick up the bad parts. Does doctrine really matter? The apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. When I think of philosophy, uh, I worry a little bit that when I start to teach philosophy or even utilize the tools of philosophy, I worry a little bit that those listening, perhaps even some of you today, may think, well, why in the world would we do that? Uh, I can't help but think of that song by Edwin Starr called War. What is it? good for absolutely nothing. And I imagine for some of our listeners, that may be the same mindset uh, you take to philosophy. What in the world is philosophy good for? Sometimes, uh, I think if we're honest, uh, those in our churches or even in our universities or seminaries might even be a little bit suspicious, maybe uh, very suspicious if philosophy, especially Greek philosophy, ever comes into contact with Christianity itself. Uh, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, what in the world do these individuals have anything to do with, say, uh, an Apostle Paul or, say, an Augustine or someone later like a Thomas Aquinas? Well, these are very difficult questions, but the type of questions we love to explore on this podcast, and I can think of no one better to join us to talk about these questions and philosophy itself than Peter Kreif. Uh, he, he is a professor of philosophy at Boston College, and you may have noticed that he's written, well, not just one, but many, many books. Uh, he's written books like Socratic Logic. Uh, He's written also uh, a book called The Philosophy of Jesus. I can't help but also mention his more recent uh, set, four volumes in fact, called Socrates' Children, the 100 Greatest Philosophers. I have found these volumes so helpful. Uh, And and if you are really just starting out, you know, just starting out in philosophy, these books can be an excellent guide just to introduce you to these philosophers and their ideas. Of course, I I can't resist myself at this point. I also have to mention that he's written books on surfing. Imagine that, a philosopher writing on surfing. Uh, You may want to check out his books, uh, I Surf, Therefore I Am, or his other book called If Einstein Had Been a Surfer. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on the Credo Podcast. 
Thank you for having me here, and thank you for that long and flattering introduction, which I shall not live up to. <laughs> well, you know I have to ask, you know, out of all of these impressive books you've written, how, how did you uh, get to the point in your life where you decided, I want to write a book not just on philosophy, but perhaps on surfing as well? Well, I grew up on the Jersey Shore, uh, and before there were surfboards back in the 40s and 50s, we had canvas mats to catch waves, uh, and I realized that that was a, uh, a cheap mystical experience, a way of losing your ego and your egotism and becoming one with something very great and larger than you are and very mysterious. So that has remained throughout my life. And, and now, as you, you know, as you look back, on on that experience i mean growing up uh you know as you called it a mystical you know a mystical experience even in the ocean uh how how did you first uh come in contact with philosophy uh and what eventually drove you to even teach philosophy well, like most people, it was a personal example. Uh, I went to Calvin College, was an English major, and started to uh, ask the philosophical questions about all the literature that I was reading. Uh, so I started uh, taking philosophy courses from Dr. William Harry Jellema, who was the best teacher I ever had. And I said, that's what I want to be. Uh, so the questions that God put into my heart at birth, which gradually grew, uh, led me to philosophy and just followed my, my heart, my interests. You know, when we think of, about, uh, the great philosophers, you know, many, many may, you know, go immediately to more modern thinkers, but, uh, I think, I think you, you may be onto something when you argue in, in, you know, various ways that, uh, actually the ancient philosophers are foundational really to to every everything that that comes next uh you know you think of that famous saying about uh about plato and and how his his philosophy for example really becomes uh so foundational for western thought after that point now as we for for some of our listeners they no doubt have probably heard of you know a socrates a plato and aristotle but may not be uh, familiar with some of these uh, philosophers and their ideas. Why don't we start off with someone like Socrates? Uh, Socrates is, uh, well, many, I think, for example, of uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, who has very, very high praise for Socrates, uh, or someone like uh, John Calvin uh, during the Reformation, who uh, looks to Socrates and actually makes uh, draws a connection between Socrates' death and the death of Christ. So let's just start off, and can you just tell us, you know, who who was Socrates, and uh, what was it about uh, some of his claims that ultimately led him uh, to his own to his own death? Well, Socrates is the great granddaddy of all philosophers. Uh, all philosophers before Socrates are lumped together in a category called the pre-Socratics. That's how unimportant they are compared with Socrates. 
Socrates was the first person who knew what a valid argument was. He uh, defeated everybody in arguments. Uh, and he was also a, a kind of moral saint. Uh, he was executed for the crime of being honest enough uh, not to be able to confess belief in the gods of Athens. Uh, he was uh, a believer in what he called the, uh, the god, the unknown god. And I think we have an indirect reference to Socrates even in the Bible where in the uh, Acts of the Apostles, Paul preaches to the philosophers in Athens, uh, and he has uh, uh, gone up the uh, road called the Way of the Gods. It was called that because all the gods of all the different cultures uh, had uh, uh, altars and uh, uh, statues there. And Paul begins his, his sermon by saying, uh, one of these intrigued me, it's to the unknown god. Uh, and since this god was unknown, there was no statue there. Well, Socrates was a stonecutter, uh, and he was not a sculptor. He was not that good, but he could he could shape altars and inscriptions, and that is certainly the god that uh, Socrates sought. So Paul then says something quite astonishing. He says to these uh, pagan Greek philosophers, uh, "The god that you are already worshiping in ignorance, I now declare to you." In other words, Socrates is a genuine God-seeker, and if uh, our Lord's words, all who seek find, are true, Socrates is almost certainly uh, have found him after death. Now, you mentioned something really fascinating here, and that is uh, one of the reasons that Socrates ends up uh, on trial and, and ultimately uh, is, is sentenced uh, to death, it has a lot to do uh, with his understanding of deity, uh, even his understanding um, of piety, I think we could say that. Uh, there, there's one point in, I believe it's his apology, where he says, he makes this, this statement uh, that uh, must have just really offended his listeners, and he basically says, um, I'm actually helping you because I'm saying man is not wise. So, so tell us, tell us what it, what is it about Socrates' view of virtue, his understanding of virtue and and wisdom, especially in relationship to mankind, that that so irritated uh, those he was who he was speaking to. Well, he called himself a philosopher, which means literally a lover of wisdom. And many of the other philosophers in his culture called themselves sophists, which means wise men. And he would argue against them that man does not have wisdom. Only God has wisdom. All we can do is seek it. In other words, he had the uh, specifically Christian virtue of humility, unlike almost everyone else in his culture. So he was a quite remarkable man. Now, as we transition from someone like Socrates to Plato, uh, with this emphasis on wisdom, uh, Plato is uh, unique in many ways, but in, in other ways, uh, Plato himself will say at points that uh, he's simply building off of, off of Socrates. Now, you know, different uh, historians of philosophy have kind of debated, okay, you know, how much is Plato dependent on Socrates? How much is Plato actually developing um, his own philosophy? Uh, how, how would you enter into that, that debate? 
Well, Plato thought himself thought of himself as a faithful disciple of Socrates, and he constructed a uh, theoretical system of philosophy to undergird uh, and be the foundation of Socrates' ethics. Socrates was mainly concerned with practical questions, virtues and vices. Uh, I'd say that Plato was to Socrates what the Apostle Paul was to Christ. Uh, a faithful disciple who uh, who developed a, a, a more systematic and, and theoretical explanation and justification for his master's teachings. Mm. And would you say is it fair to say that you know along those lines that Plato is a, is a little bit more interested in in something like metaphysics or or yep. maybe even developing what he calls the good? Yes, yes. Metaphysics is the study of reality as such, universal reality, the laws that apply to everything. Uh, ethics is uh, a study of human good and evil. And Socrates was really interested in metaphysics, but he was very interested in ethics. And Plato built uh, a metaphysics to ground and justify Socrates' ethics. The good was the absolute reality. The good was not just a human thing, it was a divine thing. Now, when we think of Plato, uh, we naturally think of his famous uh, forms uh, or, or the, really the picture of the cave. Uh, and this becomes uh, quite, in, in the history of interpreting Plato, this becomes a pivotal point. Uh, many have come back to this image of the cave. Uh, why? Maybe just explain. You know what what is going on here? Why is what what is the cave in Plato's mind, and how does how does this illustrate what he thinks about these what, what some have called the theory of the form of forms? Yeah, the Platonic forms, Platonic ideas. That's Plato's central point. Uh, many philosophers like Aristotle have dozens of points to make, but Plato has only one, uh, and that's related to everything else in his philosophy. So we've got to get that straight. What he means by a form is not just a visible shape. Uh, they're also called the Platonic ideas, but they're not simply opinions in people's minds. They're, they're objective, eternal truths, like the nature of justice. Uh, and Plato believed that the mind discovers them rather than invents them or creates them. Just as the, the body discovers things in the world, so the mind discovers things in, in the realm of truth. And the highest of these forms is the form of good or absolute goodness. So that's the way he connects metaphysics with ethics. Uh, you might look at the cave as uh, the archetype of, of, of all philosophical education, we don't begin as philosophers, as, as wise. We begin in our mother's womb uh, and as infants, and we gradually grow up. And, and, and what does that consist of? Well, it consists of, of expanding your mind and, and understanding more kinds of things. Uh, and once you get out of the cave, into the world outside the cave, you're... It's it's like being born. Uh, one cannot avoid the comparison between uh, Socrates and Jesus here, because Jesus says you have to not just improve; you have to be born again. Uh, another level of reality has to dawn upon you, and that's the outside the cave. That's that's the eternal rather than the temporal. Now, when we when we talk about this cave. Um, I mean, clearly he's, he's moving from this reality and, and eventually Plato's going to then talk about 
virtues um, he, he has in mind. When you think of, for example, his Republic, uh, f- the four cardinal virtues, justice, wisdom, courage, uh, moderation, or self-control. Uh, what may be surprising, especially when we think about how a lot of maybe enlightenment or even uh, more modern uh, philosophers approach reality and ethics, what may be surprising to some is that for Plato, he actually thinks that ethics depends uh, in large part upon your understanding of metaphysics. Uh, well, of course it does. He's right there. Because if if you are just an evolved animal, then your ethics can only be a sophisticated form of animal ethics, the pleasure-pain principle. If, on the other hand, you're a god and you're innately wise, uh, then you don't have to seek the truth. You already have it. Uh, you simply uh, consult your own opinions as, as infallible. Uh, Plato is in between those two. Uh, he has high ideals, he, he, he seeks eternal wisdom, but a seeker admits that he doesn't have it already. So he's got that humility and that skeptical attitude towards himself uh, to begin with, that the sophists don't have. But he's also got the high ideals that a, a simply worldly person doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about this, uh, th- these ideals, Maybe we could come back to the cave for a minute here, because here, even in his in this picture of the cave, uh, would you, I mean, I, th- I think we could say he seems to even be connecting at that point metaphysics and ethics, um, in, in, especially as you know, you've pointed out some of the differences between, say, a Socrates and a Plato and the Sophists. Now, for Plato, if we were to talk about you know the good news as he understands it. Um, when we look back at the cave, what is the good news? I mean, you know, if, if he's going to you know, be able to kind of speak into the individuals in that cave, what is the good news that he wants to communicate to them? The good news begins with the bad news. Uh, the first and most obvious point of the cave is it's a deep insult. It's very similar to the Christian doctrine of original sin. We're not born into wisdom. We're born into ignorance. Uh, we have the power to choose to get out of the cave and find wisdom, but we have to exercise that choice. Uh, and the unwise people in the cave think that's all there is. Uh, their little world is the world, uh, and they never leave it. But the philosopher uh, turns around and asks questions of the world. Isn't, isn't this world a kind of image or sign or pointer to something greater? Uh, our, our thoughts, the ideas in our mind, are signs or symbols uh, of things. For instance, my idea of a rock symbolizes a rock. Well, Plato went one more step. Maybe the rock also is something like an, uh, a symbol of absolute rockiness or absolute hardness. Uh, maybe the light that we see with our eyes symbolizes a, a higher light, a spiritual light. So the whole world becomes a kind of uh, image or symbol of a higher world for Plato, just as our ideas in our mind uh, are symbols or signs of the world outside it. I mean, given, given uh, Plato's appeal to uh, the absolute, I mean, if he were to say, you know, be resurrected from the dead and plop down in New York City or, you know, Boston and rub up shoulders immediately, uh, maybe at Starbucks, I don't know, uh, with a postmodernist, what do, I mean, what do you think Plato's reaction would be? 
Ah, that's an interesting question, <laughs> because postmodernism or deconstructionism is, I think, at the farthest possible pole from Plato. Mm. Uh, let's put it this way. Common sense says that uh, there are signs or symbols in our minds, there are concepts or words, which uh, signify things outside our minds. Uh, but those things outside our minds are just brute facts. That's common sense. Uh, Plato expands common sense and says, well, what you say positively is true, but what you say negatively is not true. Those things outside our mind are not just brute facts. Those two are signs or symbols that point beyond themselves to something greater. Uh, a third view, the postmodernist or deconstructionist view, is that even our thoughts and words are not really significant. Uh, they're only, uh, well, the nominalists in the Middle Ages called them flatus voces, which means a fart of the voice. Uh, think, of, think of the brain as producing uh, products like, like the, the smoke that comes out of your tailpipe when you start the car. Mm. Uh, that's all a thought is. Uh, so thoughts don't really signify things. Thoughts are simply things themselves. Now, when we uh, address, you know, Plato's understanding of, of thoughts, I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, the contrast with, with so many postmodern philosophers today is just, uh, I, I mean, it's day and night. Um, you know, when, when we go back to, say, uh, someone like Augustine, um, we see this all the more because... Augustine uh, not only believes in absolute, but Augustine comes along and he seems to want to say, you know, if, if Plato uh, were alive in his day, he, he would want to say to Plato, well, maybe these ideas are actually in the mind of God. That's exactly what Augustine did. He gave Plato's ideas their proper home. Is this, I mean, when we look at uh, Augustine, you know, he's one of those figures, right, that uh, is very beloved by some and absolutely uh, blamed uh, or, or, you know, hated by others. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when we look back at Augustine, us, I mean, many will look at him very critically to say, well, you know, uh, a Plato or, you know, other philosophers, they, they've, they've uh, influenced him and, and therefore his understanding of Christianity is quite skewed. How would you respond to, to, well, how would Augustine respond to that charge? If you look at the other fathers of the church in the first, let's say, six Christian centuries, you'll find that all of them uh, interacted with Greek philosophy, and almost all of them fell into some mistakes. Uh, They were swimming uh, in a lake that was full of debris. Uh, and some of it was good and some of it was bad. Uh, And they picked up some of the good parts, but they picked up some of the bad parts too. Augustine is the most orthodox and the most Christian of the church fathers because he didn't pick up the heresies. He didn't pick up Mm. the bad parts. He was deeply influenced by Plato. But uh, Thomas Aquinas summarizes uh, Augustine this way. When Augustine, who was influenced by the doctrines of the Platonists, found anything in Plato that was compatible with Christianity, he adopted it. And when he found anything that was incompatible, he rejected it. Mm. Mm. He had that wonderful judgment. Very helpful. Uh, what, I mean, when we look at, you know, Augustine, I think it's easy, uh, especially if we're, you know, interpreting Augustine through, you know, a 
20th, 21st century lens, it's easy to be critical of him uh, and not give him credit. But uh, like you're saying, actually, Augustine may have been smarter than than we're giving him credit for, uh, realizing that uh, there's points at which uh, he's able to uh, very much adopt and use, utilize uh, someone like Plato and other points where uh, he's going to actually offer his own his own critique. Now, now we've been talking a lot about uh, Socrates and Plato, and you know we're we're cheating a little bit, jumping ahead to Augustine, but we can't forget someone like Aristotle. Uh, you know, it, it, as we talk about you know an Augustine or Aquinas or you know the great tradition that follows, um, it's not just a Plato, but an Aristotle who becomes actually very. Uh, very crucial in so many of the philosophical, even theological debates that follow. You, know, I, I, you have this this one statement about Aristotle. You know, as, as we think, as our listeners think through, well, you know, how how do we transition from someone like Plato to Aristotle? You have this one statement that I think is is so uh, well. It's it's entertaining, but it's also uh, very uh, instructive. You say Plato is Tarzan swinging on a vine to rescue Jane from crocodiles in one fell swoop while Aristotle is the explorer, carefully mapping every inch of the jungle. Uh, Plato's works are dramatic dialogues written for popular consumption, while Aristotle's are edited uh, lecture notes kept in a research library. Maybe you could flesh this out, uh, because at one point, when you look at the end of uh, Aristotle's life, you, you make this statement and you say, you know, Aristotle... Unlike, you know, maybe a Socrates, Aristotle was just too practical for martyrdom. <laughs> so how, yeah. how do you contrast, uh, obviously they're building on each other, but how do you contrast someone like, a, like an Aristotle with a Socrates and a Plato? Aristotle is maybe 80% Plato, 20% non-Plato. He did not believe that Plato's ideas existed independently uh, all by themselves. He believed that there were indeed these changeless forms or essences or the natures of things, but they were together with things in the world. Uh, the most famous painting in the history of philosophy is called The School of Athens, and it has Plato and Aristotle in the middle, surrounded by all these other philosophers. And Plato is pointing upwards, and Aristotle is pointing downwards, mm. which is basically the medieval take on those two philosophers. Aristotle is a better philosopher for this world. Uh, Plato is a better philosopher for the next world. <laughs> you know, I've actually seen that. It, it, I, I don't think I'm mistaken that that uh, painting, isn't it in the Vatican? I think so. I think it is because when I visited Rome, uh, I remember. Uh, I mean, it was so crowded, so it was, you know, so much to see. But I remember looking at that painting. I've seen it, you know, online so many different times. But it really captured the difference between the the two of them. I mean, in, in light of what you just said, as Aristotle then looks at, say, the cave. What would be his his uh, his interpretation, or maybe even his critique of the cave? He would make a map of it. Okay. Uh, Aristotle is the most practical, commonsensical, and useful philosopher who ever lived. He uh, wrote the world's first logic textbook uh, and uh, discovered the fundamental laws of logical reasoning. Uh, his theory of the four causes is a, a wonderfully useful 
classification of all possible explanations that anybody can give about anything. Uh, his ethics, the Nicomachean Ethics, is probably the most practical uh, ethics textbook on a natural level that's ever been written. Mm. Uh, it's a favorite book of, uh, of the homeless people, by the way. Uh, I met someone once who uh, devoted two months of his life every summer to teaching philosophy to the homeless. Uh, and he said their favorite book by far was Aristotle's Ethics. Mm. So Aristotle is a wonderfully practical, commonsensical person, which is why most modern philosophers ignore him, because most modern philosophers are are straying farther and farther from common sense. Mm. Mm. Now, we mentioned, you know, on, on that very note, we mentioned earlier how you know, when you look at someone like Augustine, he takes Plato's ideas, uh, he, he gives them, you know, he, he then uh, works from those ideas and says, well, maybe Plato's onto something here, but, you know, this, these ideas are in the very mind of God. When we come to Aristotle, uh, you argue that, well, he also has an understanding of those ideas, but the new home he gives them is, is uh, in the world of nature. So in light of what you just said, maybe... Can you flesh that out? What, is, what does that mean, the world of nature, for Aristotle? Very good question, because here's a word, the word nature, which has radically changed its meaning. What we mean by the world of nature is usually the entire universe or that part of it which is still untouched by human hands. What Aristotle meant by nature is the nature of a thing, the essence of a thing, its inherent platonic form, which is manifested in its activity. Uh, why do birds fly? Because they're birds. Why do fish swim? Because they're fish. Why does man reason? Because he's man. Uh, and that notion that things have stable essences is... Uh, foundational to both Plato and Aristotle, and highly questionable in most modern philosophers. Mm. You know, you said a minute ago that with, uh, with Aristotle, he's very practical, uh, and, for, and for that reason, you know, many contemporary philosophers, you know, they, they don't have time for him. But uh, I would argue that, well, this practical side of Aristotle actually has many benefits as we just think about how logic works, or as you, you've said throughout this uh, episode, you know, just common sense. Uh, for example, uh, I think of his four causes. Uh, what, what does Aristotle mean by these four causes? What are they? And, and, and how, mm -hmm. I mean, are these, you know, are, is Aristotle just, you know, laying down principles for, you know, the, the textbook of his day? Or do these causes actually inform reality as we know it? Uh, that is also a very good question. And what Aristotle meant by a cause is not simply an invention of the mind to explain things, but rather a structure of reality that we discover. He noticed that everything in the universe changes. Uh, physical things obviously change, but even our minds also change. Uh, so the four causes are four explanations of anything in the universe of change. Uh, there are two, what he called extrinsic causes and two intrinsic causes. The two extrinsic causes are the source of a thing, uh, which is the meaning of the word cause that we usually use today. You know, the builder is the cause of a house. The author is the cause of a book. The parents are the cause of a child. Uh, and then the final cause is the natural end of a thing. Uh, an acorn becomes an oak tree and a puppy becomes a dog and a kitten becomes a cat. So that the end, the natural 
uh, perfection of a thing into which it grows is, is also part of its explanation. And then there are two internal causes, the form and the matter. The matter is what it's made out of, the contents, the stuff, and the form is what it's made into, its essence. Uh, and if you think about all ways of explaining anything in the world of change, there are no others. Those are the four. So that's an extremely useful classification uh, and a, a good way of a, of a student writing a term paper. Ask mm. for the four causes about your subject and you've covered the waterfront. Well, I'm definitely going to keep that in mind the next time I have to talk to my students about their term papers. Uh, maybe we could transition as we bring things to a conclusion here, uh, at least with Aristotle. You know, When we talk about who God is, um, some of these distinctions that Aristotle makes are are actually really important. Uh, you you've argued that uh, you know using Aristotle that well, uh, God is purely actual, or, or you know as some of the fathers said, pure act, and he's without potentiality. Now maybe that language uh, sounds a bit foreign to some of our listeners, but can you explain why this language is so important to differentiate, say, the creator from the, the creature? Well, Aristotle's language of potentiality and actuality is an abstract way of, of talking about change. Uh, when one thing changes into another thing, uh, the first thing doesn't simply cease to exist and the other things suddenly come into existence. Rather, uh, change is the actualization of a potentiality. Uh, if uh, a, a forest catches on fire, it's got to be flammable. It's got to have a potentiality to catch on fire. And something that's already got kinetic energy has to uh, transfer it to the forest in order to light it on fire. That's a commonsensical explanation of what change is. Well, if there is a single perfect being that is the ultimate explanation for everything, which Aristotle believed, he was a kind of a deist, uh, but he certainly believed in a, a, a god who was the unique first cause of everything, that being could not be part of the changing universe. So God does not change. So he has no potentiality for getting better or worse. He's infinitely perfect eternally. Uh, and that's the ultimate efficient cause uh, and final cause of the entire universe, the Alpha and the mm. Omega. Mm. So there are close connections between Aristotle and Christian theology. Thomas Aquinas used Aristotle in many of his uh, arguments, especially the arguments for the existence of God. On the other hand, there are deep limitations in Aristotle. God is not a person. He doesn't create the universe out of nothing, and he doesn't have love for his creatures. <laughs> now, uh, that last statement you made, I, I just find it so important, so crucial, because um, many uh, today, uh, it, Christ, well-meaning Christians, may come to a discussion like this, and uh, they may think, well, uh, you know, when they say read the fathers, for example, or hear, you know, discussions about God as, you know, pure act, this sort of thing, they, they may th make the argument, well, this is just the uh, imposition of, you know, uh, Greek philosophy on Christianity. And, and as a result, uh, we've ended up with, you know, a God who's immutable or impassable or eternal, that, that sort of thing. And, and really, that, th they would then argue, well, that, that actually is not Christianity and uh, definitely has nothing to do with the Bible. But uh, I'm guessing from what you just said, uh, you might actually push back against that sort of assumption. How so? 
Well, my goodness, uh, the Bible seems very clear that uh, uh, God is not like man. He does not grow. He does not get better. He does not suddenly become wise. Uh, and even God incarnate has an eternal dimension. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I think the eternity of God is definitely a biblical doctrine. The alternative, which is often called process theology, is really a heresy. It means that God is like us, part of the world of change, and he gets either better or worse. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. Mm. His relationship to us changes because we change. Think of a think of a pendulum, which connects the uh, uh, the ball which moves with the hinge uh, which doesn't move. The hinge is God, and the ball is us. And religion is uh, the bar that connects the changing with the unchanging. So of course, uh, religion changes. That is the relationship between us and God changes, but God doesn't. You know this this uh, statement you've just made. God does not change. It's so foundational. For Christianity, it's so foundational for our understanding of God, uh, a biblical understanding of God, and uh, it shouldn't surprise us then that uh, when we when we read, say, someone like Augustine, Augustine has much to say about God as immutable and unchanging, um, and as he you know as he looks around for language and ideas to communicate this, he's recognizing uh, in, in someone like uh, Plato or an Aristotle, he's recognizing that uh, by God's common grace, there's the, w- the way that they are describing um, the absolute. Actually, there's correspondence then uh, with, with, the, with Christianity itself. So uh, as they use phrases like pure act. And, and Augustine, uh, as well as Aquinas and other medieval philosophers, especially Boethius, used that Greek language to uh, explore and explain many Christian mysteries. For instance, predestination and free will. Uh, if God is eternal and outside of time, he doesn't forecast the future. Uh, he already is in the future, and he still is in what we call the past. Uh, and that allows for uh, total divine knowledge of past, present, and future at a single moment, which doesn't interfere with our free will. If God is watching us uh, in the present do an act, uh, he's not pulling our strings like a puppet master. But if you put God in time, uh, you can't possibly solve that problem. God is either pushing you around or waiting uh, in wonder to see what you're going to do next. We've been talking to uh, Peter Kreif about philosophy, specifically these ancient philosophers from Plato or Socrates, Plato to Aristotle but also pressing into uh, how philosophy can actually help and assist us as we use language and concepts to understand Christianity better, to articulate and even safeguard who God is, the God of the Bible, even better than before. Uh, I would encourage our listeners, if, if you uh, have not uh, picked up one of Peter's books, please do so. Uh, as you can probably tell from, from this episode, Peter uh, not only uh, addresses deep ideas, but does so in a way that's so accessible. Uh, I think you will find him very enjoyable. 
Uh, and uh, you, mi- you might, even in the process, uh, learn not only about philosophy, but perhaps a little bit about surfing as well. Peter, thank you so much for joining, uh, joining me uh, on the Credo Podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, and God bless you and your work. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine, with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.